A very warm welcome to the Kudos community. This is the first Kudos podcast and I'm your host Pete Hill, VP of Sales. Our guest on the podcast today is none other than our very own CEO of Kudos, Mr. Matt Hawkins. Matt plans to raise over $1 billion for charity using spare computing power with his unique decentralized cloud compute solution and ecosystem, Kudos. Kudo, the parent company, is a global leading provider of monetization applications for global users. It's creating a cleaner, more equitable world by making use of billions of dollars of underutilized hardware from around the world, and then redistributing it for the betterment of communities and organizations. Today, they'll be talking through a major milestone for its layer one blockchain, Kudos, with the Kudos staking platform going live. But first, a quick mention from our sponsors. A big, big thank you to our sponsors AMD, a multinational semiconductor Goliath developing GPUs and CPU processors across the globe for gamers, designers, service providers, pretty much all walks of life. To Algorand, currently building the technology that will accelerate the convergence between centralized and traditional finance by enabling the creation of next-gen financial products. And finally, to cloud service provider THG, a subsidiary of the Hut Group with 50 plus global locations that will be contributing in the future to the Kudo ecosystem. For more information and to support the Kudos podcast, why not check out our sponsors in the description below. Thank you everyone for tuning into our first ever Kudos cast. Today we're going to be looking at blockchain and sustainability and is it an oxymoron or a reality? As voted by our Telegram and Twitter community, the Kudos cast will be a weekly podcast covering a broad range of topics. Today, we have the one and only Matt Hawkins, CEO of Kudos, uh, joining us to offer insight into some of the recent news headlines linked to reducing carbon emissions and to discuss some of our own plans. Matt, how are you today? Yeah, very good, thanks. Excellent. Uh, I know you very well, of course, the relationship spanning three decades now, if you can believe that. But can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so like you said, Matt Hawkins, um, CEO of Kudos, uh, give a little bit of my background. So I kind of come from running businesses in the past, got into technology when I was when my young years, really. I guess I started programming when I was nine. Back then, it was as quick to write a game <laughs> yourself rather than actually buying a game online because everything got loaded by tape and you had to go to a store. So it's quicker to buy a book and actually build, write your own games. So I, yeah, that's how I sort of got into computers. And then following that, then really when I was in my teenage years, I started a software business, actually selling computers and software through magazines. This is before the internet took off and before you could yeah, actually buy anything. Yeah, I know. It always scares me when I say it. So, you know, that, that got into selling and, and building software. And then following that, actually, this was at university doing a business and computing degree. That's when really I started building online businesses. I started a, a few, I just started an affiliate marketing company just as things were kind of taken off on the internet and then a social networking business. Um, both of those ended up being acquired and merged. And then kind of it got to about 2000 and I started a cloud company. So this was literally as the internet and e-commerce was taking off and Google and these other platforms were beginning to take off. Um, and the demand for cloud was essentially going through the roof back then. So uh, I saw that opportunity and started offering out data center space networks. The model worked really well. You know, obviously the market was growing incredibly fast. Uh, we ended up running that business. So I ran for about 16 years. We ended up building actually one of Europe's biggest data center networks. We ended up in about 55 data centers, built our own fiber networks, built our own data centers, 
build our built our own cloud platforms. And through that time, you know, really just saw huge waste of IT capacity. And, you know, going probably since about probably 2010, 2011, um, we just saw networks being unused, you know, 80% spare capacity. We saw uh, data centers being unused, just pure infrastructure, fiber networks to the home not being used, cloud platforms. And really, you know, that, that was obviously why I started my last business. So I've kind of, which is kudo today, trying to make use of that world's unused computing. So really, you know, my my background is technology and infrastructure and cloud platforms. It's been that through and through. I think got a, a passion for it. Okay, great. Thank you, Matt. That's, uh, yeah, some, quite some experience there and uh, very knowledgeable guy. So it's, yeah, it's good to see within this um, industry. And I mean, just on that note, I mean, you've been in the tech industry. You've already said you've been building and running businesses for over 20 years now. As an engineer and businessman, you're, you're clearly passionate about technology. When did you get involved in the world of blockchain and crypto? I mean, actually, right at the start would have been, uh, these were miners coming to us because we owned and ran data centers, you know, miners would come in and they wanted to host them. So that I think went back to about 2013 or so when the first miners were coming to us. So that's probably when I first really got interested in it, but it was more towards, you know, we, we sold C4L, the, the data center company in 2016, but it was kind of getting towards that time where I think I'd, I'd seen, you know, Bitcoin is what it is today really is kind of a, a distribution of value, you know, or, or holding assets rather than building on top of it. But when Ethereum came out, you know, it was the first time you can actually start building things on it, really. So that was about 2016, 2017, I started getting into it and obviously started, you know, a, a blockchain business in 2017. So I'd say probably since about 2016, I really got heavily involved in it. I mean, five years, as everyone knows, as they're probably listening in, uh, five years in this space, you're considered as an OG. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the, the rate that it evolves. Um, okay, so let's let's jump into, you know, straight into the why. I mean, this, this the theme of this is, you know, kind of around sustainability. We've all got a responsibility now, every person, every business, uh, I feel, to protect our planet and, um, you know, use the technology that we're innovating to, to, to go towards, you know, kind of reducing the carbon footprint. Um, so, you know, why, why is the saying that sustainability is so important to, to Kudos? Can you, can you explain that? Yeah, it comes a little bit from the ethos of when I was running C4L. So that, you know, being a data center company, you, you use up a lot of energy and we were in, well, 50 odd data centers are between those, you know, they use an incredible amount of energy. So when we built our own data center, you know, that, that was all renewable energy and that was important for us. And the other thing that you look at from the data center side is making them more efficient, you know, both environmentally, that's good, but also commercially, naturally, it's as good as a data center provider, but that's really, you know, going through that process, that was all about how can you make more things more efficient? How can you make more greener and kind of got into that mindset? running that last business and realized actually, you know, there's, there's a lot of places, a lot of improvements can be done in this industry. In the computing industry, you know, there, there is billions of tons of CO2 that's produced by building servers, data centers, PCs, you know, all most infrastructure or, or most systems, you know, that we run today all sit inside data centers, running networks. You know, it's one of, one of the major industries of CO2 production. If you then look side out, outside of travel and these other industries. So, that was really where the interest came from, is how can we improve CO2 and sustainability in this space? 
Uh, and I talk about CO2 because that, that's just one aspect. But then sustainability is, you know, rather than keep building things, how can you use things that already exist, which is the other side of sustainability. So that's been the passion. And obviously that's purely what we're about is, is using infrastructure that's already there and, and being, you know, greener than what is currently used today. I think from a, you know, just a society perspective and, you know, the environment that we live in, it's a responsibility that we have to take on. Uh, and everyone is, you know, well, most people certainly uh, are looking at doing that and contributing towards it. So I think, you know, it's just been one of our, our main goals to start with. And, you know, and as a business, you know, it, it should be our responsibility to make sure that we are sustainable, uh, whether using other people's infrastructure or just our own. Brilliant. That sounds great. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very pleased for, for all our listeners at, at home, wherever you're listening, that, you know, I'm part of this as well. It's very important to myself. And, uh, and I know a lot of the staff and colleagues at, at Kudos as well. So, yeah, thank you for that, Matt. So let's talk a little bit about kind of Ethereum and Bitcoin and uh, some of the different mechanisms that are used within those in those blockchains, because that ultimately links back to sustainability as well. And I know this may divide some opinion out there, you know, with the, the concept of Bitcoin maximalists that, that may say that actually there is a way of designing proof of work for, for those that don't know, proof of work is a consensus mechanism that the Bitcoin network uses, where you have to increase the size of computational power to, to ultimately win a new block. And you know there is an argument there that um, you know proof of work can be used towards increasing the amount of renewable energy infrastructure. But you know if we look at the underlying principle of it, it is still consuming more electricity than a network may need to. So so you know there's a there's a large number of blockchain projects out there that are starting to use proof of stake consensus now. Matt, maybe if you could just give a, a quick explanation of proof of stake and you know and then answer why that is in your opinion that that the projects are starting to use it yes yeah, sure so you know as a blockchain you need consensus and the reason you need consensus is really that is an agreement between multiple parties if you're a centralized entity you're the one that makes that decision and and that's very simple because you don't have to go to others but when you're running infrastructure on hundreds or thousands of devices and many of those devices are untrusted or those many of those businesses or individuals are untrusted you need a way to create trust and consensus is a way of doing it and it really it's an algorithmic way of doing it proof of work obviously was you know the the first major adopted consensus and that's what bitcoin and ethereum ran on but the problem with proof of work is literally your your consensus or the, the proof is the computational power of the network so that's not great because you're not actually you know producing anything for it really you're you're just doing one simple task which could be done much more efficiently and you know that is one of the complaints obviously about uh, bitcoin or ethereum or these other uh, networks but to start with that was kind of version 1 of consensus and it was adopted by most of the early blockchains because as these technologies get better then you know people come up with better ways of doing it and as you you know you know proof of stake is more of a economic way of proving the viability and consensus of the network. And really that's about people staking their funds into the network. So if you look at proof of work, you have to put funds into the network, but really you're doing it by buying hardware and allocating that to the network. When you do proof of stake, you're just buying the token and allocating it to the network. So it's actually the same mechanics, but one uses energy and one doesn't. So that, that's the best way to look at it. Either way, both of them, you have to invest into the network to make it work. 
so then, you know, proof of stake has naturally become probably virtually all new blockchains are based on proof of stake now because it's greener. It doesn't use the energy that was used beforehand. And it also means that then you can use that computational power on those devices for other things like real compute, you know, bandwidth and GPUs and CPUs to, to do other resources. So um, naturally, we took proof of stake as our mechanism. The way that we decided to use, or the one that we decided to use, was Tendermint, which is Byzantine fault tolerant. What that really means is, you know, one third of the network, uh, as well as long as two thirds of the network is is coming to consensus, then the network runs fine, you know, and continues to run. So uh, what you do on those networks is make sure that you have a distributed network across multiple entities, across multiple environments, and um, to make sure that you've always got consensus and. Tendermint actually has become one of the main kind of underlying uh, consensus elements that are used on a lot of the new blockchains now. That The advantage of that is that it gives us horizontal scaling. It enables anyone to stake onto the network. So as a validator, we, we've got a core network and it enables anyone to stake onto the network. But then also validators generally on most networks, they need to be, they're, they're quite often, you need to put a higher amount of staking in because you want that real core network to be run by kind of more stable entities. But then you have delegated staking, and that enables anyone to stake via those validators. So that enables anyone pretty much at any level, you know, down to a few dollars that they can then stake via these validators and still benefit. So it enables, you know, rather than just, you know, if you look at some blockchains like EOS, for example, and you, you well, actually, a lot of other blockchains have now got delegated staking, but some of the blockchains have like a closed entity and it's just a small number of people that benefit. Whereas if you open up the delegated staking, then it means everybody really can benefit from the network. Brilliant. Okay. And and I just want to kind of pick up on uh, Byzantine fault tolerance as well, because, you know, it sounds pretty cool. So uh, in my understanding, is that similar to the how the generals used to communicate around Byzantine when they were formulating attacks? Is that is that accurate? Yeah, yeah that's it. So essentially, how can you trust what someone has said is the case without actually being able to see their results and prove it. And basically it's an algorithm that when you've got multiple parties, as long as a certain number of those parties can agree, then you know it's considered the truth because algorithmically it is the truth. Without going into the detail of it, you know, that's essentially how it works. Trust in the code. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Excellent. Okay, so let's, let's talk about Ethereum 2 um, or 2.0, however you want to pronounce it. Uh, it's long been talked about um, and clearly a huge project to undertake given the size of the, uh, the Ethereum current Ethereum proof of work network, so the 1.0. So do you believe, I mean, with all the, the kind of proof of state networks coming out that you've, you've just touched on, do you believe that Ethereum will lose the vast majority or, you know, a significant slice of developers building on their network because these newer blockchains have had the advantage of launching with proof of stake from, from day one? I think you kind of need to look at where we've come from, really. So if you look at, you know, Bitcoin, it's essentially the first generation of blockchain, which is primarily you know, for digital, used as a digital currency. And um, if you look at the se second generation, which is really Ethereum and other similar blockchains, they're essentially programmable blockchains that you can then build on top of and build smart contracts on top of. So, you know, Ethereum was the first one to do that, that was adopted on a mass scale. And its primary language was Solidity. So what's really happened is Solidity has essentially become the standard language 
you know, that, that most developers that are building smart contracts have learned and it's become, you know, the, the default really. And then, you know, with any wildly adopted technology, then that also has standards and they've got token standards. So the ERC20, for example, is, you know, the, the token that, or it's the standard for the token. ER721 is a standard for an NFT, you know, which is a non-fungible token. And whether you're Ethereum or whether you've built another blockchain, they've essentially adopted the same standards. So I think Ethereum, I still think, will become the primary blockchain that a lot of the developers will build on or we, we, the developers take standards from. So you now have a lot of other blockchains that, have built, that are built on, well, generally they either support Solidity or they support Rust, has been what most blockchains have adopted. Rust kind of gives you a, a lot more extendability and the ability to, it removes some of the restrictions that you get with Solidity. Um, and because uh, a lot of the others have accepted Rust as well, it means the interoperability, I think, from those will become normal. And there's a lot of bridges. So, you know, you can get bridges onto Polygon, for example, you can get bridges onto Kudos and, and other blockchains. And that enables you to either run those networks as a side chain, you can run them as a bridge and actually, you know, transfer assets between them. So I think, you know, what, what we're really seeing is a lot of other blockchains kind of taking, yeah, if you look at a typical market, they are taking some of the pie of Ethereum that people would have built onto Ethereum. Um, and the reason they're building on these other blockchains is obviously one, because of cost and scale. Well, this is the two primary reasons, but also because you may have a USP of a blockchain, such as it offering compute or, or it's got other factors such as oracles that you want to connect into. So I think you'll see a lot more developers you are seeing now building on these other chains, but I'd say probably at least half of the chains that we're looking at at least are still interconnected into Ethereum. So I think Ethereum is kind of going to become the central entity and then you've got a whole ecosystem that's building around it. And people either decide to build on Ethereum um, and you know, that they can absorb the costs of building on Ethereum and kind of the, the downsides of it until Ethereum 2 is in place. Or you have the problem, or actually you have the, uh, on a layer two network, then you still can have the security of Ethereum, but without the costs. So yeah, I, I think they're certainly percentage-wise losing market share, but I think the importance of Ethereum is not going away. And I think you know, a lot of these blockchains that are coming out, everyone still wants to interconnect into Ethereum. So it's kind of draws a lot of parallels with AWS or a big hyperscale cloud, really, but a decentralized version, you know, that's the the, the, the kind of purpose of, uh, of blockchain. But with an AWS or one of these hyperscaler clouds is that uh, you have them as uh, this central entity, or if you like, or the, the the biggest platform that has that that kind of mass market share. But then you've got thousands of these service providers that are add-in services that are bridging into to those environments. So a few, a few not exact, but a few parallels there. Yes, yeah. Uh, and I think even when Ethereum 2 comes out, for example, where you put the AWS comparison, you know, Ethereum 2 is designed to have lower costs and better scalability and other aspects, but it's still not designed to provide compute. You know, it's still designed primarily for smart contracts. So you're, you've still got the demand of other blockchains that are building compute that need to provide the scaling of, of ETH2 even when that's in place. Brilliant. Okay, thanks for, thanks for clearing that up. So move, moving on to blockchain politics, let's call it like that. So, I mean, I've seen a, a number of tweets recently, read a few articles, and there seems to be, you know, quite a lot of politics around POS, proof of stake um, for those at home. 
You touched on this a little bit earlier when you mentioned that kind of with proof of work or proof of stake, you know, there's still an investment involved into it. But if we, if we kind of stick to, to proof of stake here, some people see it as unfair as you need to have money to make money. That's very much the opinion. So is, there a, is this another example of the rich get richer and the poor get poorer in your view? I think, I mean, if, if you look really at what staking is, staking is, you know, putting funds uh, or assigning funds to a blockchain and then, you know, essentially getting rewarded for it. So if you look at mining, it's the same. You know, you, you assign hardware that you've had to buy uh, and then you get rewarded for that. So in either case, uh, I think you, you know, your rewards that you get are proportional to the amount that you put into the network. So, you know, if you've put $10 worth in, obviously you're going to get $10 of rewards back. If you put in $10,000, you'll get $10,000 worth of rewards back. So I don't think it's, you know, I think really it's about your rewards are proportional to how much you put into the network. So, you know, that is the same with really any economics of any platform or society. So I don't think it's, you know, it's a redistribution of anything in that sense. You know, it, it would not make sense that, People that put in less into the network get rewarded more than people that put in more. You know, so it should always be proportional. So as long as that's in place, then you know the balances are kept the same. Awesome. I think it's you know with anything new, there's always going to be a divided opinion, uh, and that's ultimately why we're using code for consensus, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Excellent. Um, I just want to I want to move on to some you know carrying on the news theme. Uh, there's been some staggering figures that have come out, kind of taken me by surprise in the past few weeks. Um, so a couple of the headlines, let's, you know, let's read them out. So JP Morgan stated that crypto staking, the industry itself and the, the, the staking as a service providers and uh, what their liquidity services that they are providing uh, to token holders. They're saying that the industry will balloon to a $40 billion uh, market cap or by, by 2025 or $40 billion turnover by 2025. Ethereum 2.0, uh, proof of stake network, um, has already got $13 billion worth of Ether staked on it. And Cardano has actually got $30 billion staked uh, of ADA on their network. So this seems to be a clear sign that proof of stake and staking services are, are here to stay. As a, as a proof of stake network, are you expecting Kudos to lock in a, a similar amount of value or a, a similar value, if you could explain that? Um, yeah, so I think, you know, you're seeing with any of these successful proof of stake networks, you know, naturally they grow and they'll either grow with the market or they'll grow because they're exceeding the market because of the technology that they've built. And also, you know, that is either from staking or from utilization of the networks, really. I think, you know, we... Naturally, we have been focused on building a scalable network that, you know, will scale in line, you know, with the, with these blockchains such as Cardano and uh, certainly technically able to get to those levels. And, you know, we would expect to, over time, be uh, locking in, you know, similar value, especially, you know, if you look at our user base. We haven't really integrated this user base yet because we're currently going through, obviously, private testnet and then public testnet very shortly before going live uh, fully publicly but you know we've already got tens of thousands of users kind of in all the different countries so i think it's all about adoption and you know how easy is it for people to adopt that technology and the networks that are adopted most either by number of wallets or number of users are generally the ones that i would say you know are growing the most and the ones that integrate the most so 
I think you've seen the success of this in Ethereum and Polygon and Cardano. Um, so yeah, I, I would expect that we, over time, we're probably a couple of years behind technology-wise, based against, well, actually that's not, <laughs> that wouldn't be the case because um, we're probably following a similar timeline to Cardano to go in live. But, you know, some of the earlier ones versus Ethereum, you know, obviously came in earlier. So I think that a lot of the earlier projects have had a, an advancement on the network, but the later projects like ours, uh, we've got an advancement on uh, the technologies that have come out and we're managing to use tooling such as Tendermint that kind of Tendermint's had six years of development and uh, any projects that use them take advantage of that development. So I think, you know, for us and for a lot of these other blockchains that are managing to use in a lot of tooling that already exists, then, you know, together we, we should be able to really get a lot more stake in much faster into those networks as they scale. Brilliant. Exciting times ahead. Okay, let's move on from proof of stake and uh, talk a little bit more about proof of work and the mighty Bitcoin network. Um, it's had a fair bit of heat lately. We've already spoken about it due to its energy footprint. Uh, now, crypto's favorite hero or villain, depending on your view or when he tweets, Mr. Elon Musk, was a large contributor towards the, the the crash in May this year. And he did that by announcing that Tesla is no longer accepting Bitcoin for new car sales. And only a few weeks after he sent the price skyrocketing the other way for announcing that they would accept Bitcoin. But in his statement, he said that Tesla would not look at it again until at least 50% Bitcoin network was proven to be running off renewables. Subsequently, since then, the Bitcoin Mining Council was set up by some prominent figures in the industry. Uh, and, and just this week, they released a report to say 56% of Bitcoin comes from renewable energy now. Are we on the brink of another Elon tweet, one that will send the price up again and kickstart another bull run? What, what's, what does your crystal ball say today? Um, I think, you know, a lot of the mining farms, over 50%, actually, the hash rate came from China or that region. So that, that's a lot of farms, a lot of miners that have been displaced from it. And you've seen that as the, well, the hash rate's gone down. And obviously the difficulty is now adjusted from that. We've gone down to less than 50% of the hash rate that it was before. Um, which really just shows how much mining was done over there. Um, but in China, the majority of the energy that's produced over there has been produced by coal or certainly not renewable energy. So since that has happened, you know, that, in my view, is a good thing that we're now, rather than a lot of it being centralised in China, a lot of those country or companies um, have now moved into or in the process of moving into the States and Europe. And most of those, because, you know, we've been talking to these companies as well, you know, they are moving to renewable energy locations. So I think you've seen a huge shift. Uh, and I think it's a really good thing that China has essentially shut down mining in their country because what it has done is it's forced miners to go into renewable energy. And also it's forced decentralization because it was quite, although it was different countries, uh, sorry, different companies um, run by different entities, you know, that there's a lot of control in China. Um, so that was always a risk. So that risk has now gone. And it's moved into other countries, such as the US and Iceland and Sweden and these other locations. So I think actually we've seen a really good shift. So it's not just the renewable part. I think renewable energy and a lot of these, you'll see from the hash rate, you know, we're still at less than half. So the actual increase in renewable energy percentage wise hasn't actually been appreciated yet until the new hardware comes back online. A number of these farms, they will have done a number of few things. They will have either shut down to de-risk or they would have actually, you know, just it was too much hassle to move across to another country or they may have had regulatory issues to do it. 
and they they would have shut down. You know, so we're still in a process of this new hardware coming online, and a lot of the new hardware is going to be in renewable sites. So even though it's considered at fifty six percent now, I think you'll see this go up over the next few weeks and months um, as the hash rate comes online in renewable sites. So I think the story is actually going to be much better than it was. You know, in from a 56% now. So I think, yeah, Ellen's point, and I'm surprised actually he said 56%, oh, sorry, 50%. Uh, I thought he would actually come up with a number higher that it would need to be before he adopted it. You know, maybe he was taking into account that it didn't want to be a long process or a long time frame. You know, I think a lot is of that, what, Is that a conspiracy that I, I hear that, Matt? Well, <laughs> um, <laughs> there is a, you, you'll see a lot of the FUD online and, and people saying that he doesn't know what he's doing, but clearly he's very astute knows exactly what he's doing, knows how it's going to affect the market. So I think he makes a lot of these. And, you know, also he has to report regulatory-wise. He also has to report to shareholders. You know, I think they've got a very good idea of what they're doing and what's going on. They're just obviously not sharing that. So, you know, the the 50%, I think now that we are at those and you'll see this go up, then I, I would, well, he's already said that they would accept it. So, you know, now, now that we've essentially had this displacement happen, like I said, a lot of the farms have had to sell hardware, so that would have depressed the price. You've had some regulatory changes in the US where funds now have to also essentially put up fiat money when they are short in the market, which again, put a kind of a rush, or you could see in the shorts market, put a rush on shorts before that date actually came into effect. So you've kind of had all these different things happen at the same time, and obviously the FUD with Ellen as well. So I think a lot of that is out of the way. We've just had Grayscale, which is essentially the largest buyer of Bitcoin, they also had a lot of their shareholders released. But they released shares, but it's the equivalent of Bitcoin um, into the market over last week and the week before. Again, all pushing the price down. And now we've kind of got a gap. So again, I think in about just over a week's time or one to two weeks time, you've got Grayscale are releasing their next batch. But after that, we haven't really got as far as we're aware, any major things that are going to be putting the price down. And I'm still quite a strong believer in the four-year pattern. We follow, we're still following that pattern. If you look at the 2013 pattern and the 2017 pattern, there's a lot of similar, huge number of similarities between these two. And still, you can predict it to an extent of where we are. But there's also a lot of other indicators which show that we are pretty much at the bottom of this part of the run. One a good example is like the stablecoin supply ratio, which essentially puts in the ratio of stablecoins to the amount of Bitcoin trading. And that shows we're at the bottom. And there's there's other indicators that show we're at the bottom of this cycle. So I think, you know, we're probably over the next few weeks, I think, you know, we will continue to by the end of the year. Uh, there's a lot of predictions kind of in the hundred thousand dollar plus market for Bitcoin. I, I think that's probably still valid from what I can see today. So yeah, I think we are having a pause. And like any market, you need a retracement. And Bitcoin typically retraces 30%, 40%, sometimes 50%. At the end of a bull run can retrace 80%. So, you know, it, it's it's healthy to have a retracement. We've had an extended retracement this time, you know, and, and I think still technology is being improved. The industry in itself is being more regulated. You know, with regulation, it means that the the institutions and the funds and governments can take it on board. It means people can pay, like in states in the US, they can pay their taxes. You know, certain countries or regions are adopting it as a currency. So, you know, I think, 
yeah, I think everything is still looking good. It's just a long period. And of course, Elon is going to tweet again. Now we're over the 50%. So um, anyone out there that wanted a Tesla, keep your Bitcoin back because you'll be able to buy one soon. Cool. Okay, so we, we, we talked about Elon, um, although he is, in my mind at least, undoubtedly doing a lot of pos- positive stuff for the world. I know I'm not the only one that will refer to him as a Bond villain style character. Uh, I think he likes it and somewhat plays up to that persona as well. But now we have the president of El Salvador announcing that Bitcoin will be legal tender and that El Salvador will be using volcanoes to mine BTC, uh, Bitcoin. So, I mean, in my mind, I'm I'm, I'm picturing a film that's even more Bond-like. What what are your thoughts on this? Uh, I think think with a lot of industries, you have a villain and you have a hero or multiple. And I think cryptocurrency and blockchain is is probably one of the, the... the largest aspects there that you see those characters, you know, you get that in film, TV, but you get it in many other industries. Uh, so naturally, Ellen likes he likes attention. <laughs> he wouldn't be doing what he's doing today if he didn't. And you know, any he's you know he he's very good at getting attention. I think either it being if it's good or if it's or he, actually if if it's hero attention or if it's villain attention, he's still getting attention. You know, and, and it's getting attention, and and that relates to Tesla or SpaceX or you know any other projects that he's working on. It kind of comes back to him because he's essentially the main brand there, isn't he? Whereas with the Salvador, you know, that is that's completely different, really. That is about providing an alternative or potentially a better financial system than they have today. It's releasing their ties from the dollar. It's providing an alternative to the dollar and the issue, you know, with the dollar or the pound or the euro is, you know, pretty much is guaranteed to go down. And it's guaranteed to go down in value. So the the, the one of the problems with, you know, the, the way economics, in my view, work today is that if you hold ten thousand pounds today, in you know, ten years time, you can do a lot less with that ten thousand pounds, and you're you're forced to keep earning, and you can't keep your money in the bank if you keep it in the bank. The value of that money goes down, so you have to put it into things. And you know the economics are designed that way to, you know, force currencies to go back into circulation and to be used. Uh, and you know that that happens through inflation and many other methods. So I think really that is about providing an alternative for people in that country. And if you look at what their uh, El Salvador themselves, a lot of the the money that actually comes into the country, then that actually is passed back from people working in other countries. And at the moment, a lot of those have to pay a lot of fees to send that money back to the to their country. You know, they don't have a massive GDP themselves. If you look at what the country or the region actually does to generate revenue, you know, or, or what is its exports, they don't have a huge number of exports themselves. So the advantage of having a volcano with a huge amount of energy on there is that you can produce a huge amount of electricity. And that actually really essentially enables them to have a large increase in export value there. So they can now produce, using natural resources, they can produce an export of electricity that can be consumed in their country and that those funds go back into the economy. So, you know, it's actually a a lot more to it than just giving people the currency. So if you then link up the energy that's then used to fund renewable energy and that that energy uh, or that the currency that's produced from it obviously can be used to fund the generation of natural electricity, but also that can then be used in the economy itself. 
with lower fees for people. Uh, if you think use things like the Lightning Network on Bitcoin, you know, you've got nominal costs to transfer any kind of funds between two entities, be it international or local. So really it's opening up the, the country and he's actually, you know, he's given everybody $30 worth of Bitcoin so that they can get going and get trading. So I think, you know, it's, it's a really good thing. And it's comparing the two is totally different. One is actually, one is, I would say hype. <laughs> actually, you know, he's not bringing anything to the community at the moment. And then with El Salvador, actually, I think this is a brilliant use case of what is possible and how cryptocurrency can be used, you know, for good. So volcano generated money as something that we probably yeah. wouldn't have uh, envisaged 10 years ago, but I mean, it's fantastic. And, um, you know, they, they do something very similar in Iceland as well. I know that, you know, we, we, we work with a number of mining farms up in, in Iceland and it's fascinating. I mean, if anyone wants to know about the engineering of it, there's a, there's a good program on the BBC, I think it is. But essentially, they dig a big hole, they pour water down it, the water turns into steam because of the heat from the from the geothermal activity, and the steam gen- uh, turns a turbine, the turbine creates electricity, electricity powers the farm, and uh, Bitcoin is produced. So there you go, a uh, little, little bit of uh, engineering knowledge for you. So, I mean, it's... I, 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 Absolutely agree with you. I think it's fantastic that you know Bitcoin is being used in this in this way, and it's you know it's truly living up to its uh, kind of white paper and, and purpose. So I I mean I absolutely agree with you, Matt. I think it's it's fantastic that you know Bitcoin has been adopted by El Salvador and the first country you know to make it legal tender, and you know Bitcoin itself is truly living up to its white paper and its and its purpose as designed by Satoshi. But do you, do you have an opinion about the prerequisites uh, a country would need for successful adoption of an alternative to Bitcoin? So what we refer to in the industry as, a, as an altcoin into their economy? Yeah, I think you've got to look first at what, you know, any type of cryptocurrency, what is required for you know, a, a government or a country to adopt it. You know, if you look at the currencies that are already out there, then really you're looking at market cap and liquidity because you need those two in place. One market cap is needed for the sheer volume or the number of people that are going to transact it. And then liquidity is needed so that, you know, that that can actually be traded and exchanged for things without affecting the price. So those really, I'd say, are the two most important elements. If you then look at kind of from a security perspective, then you need decentralization. There's two ways of doing it. You could either take, you know, China's approach where they produce their own currency and that's owned by the government, or you could take, you know, El Salvador's approach where they're using currency that already exists, in this case, Bitcoin. If you take the decentralized route, you know, or with the way El Salvador has done, then, you know, Bitcoin is decentralized, especially more now China's shut them down on that side. So it meets all those requirements. And then finally, you know, as a government themselves, then they need the legal framework and then they need approval to adopt that legal framework as well, which is the thing that El Salvador is going through at the moment with the IMF to try and get approval with it. So really, that's that's what is required if it's going to be taken over on a full country level. If you just want adoption of a currency in a country rather than it being adopted by the country, things change because that's more about how is that going to be used? How is how does it, how do you get it into the hand of the masses? So, if you took an example of, you know, on our blockchain, for example, where users can earn currency from their spare computing, that could be home users, that could be mobile users, but virtually 
certainly in, in uh, Western society or first world societies, then most people have either a mobile phone or a computer. So that enables anyone to adopt the currency. It enables anyone to earn the currency. You're kind of removing that barrier to entry where they have to buy the currency. And if you look, there's 2 billion people that are unbanked in the world and have no you know, physical or virtual means to buy that currency unless they went to you know, like a crypto ATM or some way to convert their fear into you know, the digital currency. So your barrier to entry is really high. So if you can find a way that you can let people earn a currency, you know, we're using compute, but there's there's other ways that people could earn by doing, you know, there's kind of all sorts of crazy ones down to kind of exercise and things that are out there. Then then that's where you can get adoption of it. And then you really need just other ways for them to then transact it between each other to create that value. I think that's, yeah, I think they're the key elements really. Brilliant. Okay, thank you. And last question, and I have to ask this, the parent company to, to Kudos is Kudo, or Kudo Ventures is the, is the full name. A main revenue source for Kudo is currently cryptocurrency mining. Doesn't that go against the, the green image, um, you know, what we've been discussing here? And, and what measures are you taking to ensure it meets the company's sustainability, culture and goals? Yeah, uh, yeah. so I guess from the outside, it can have that perception you know, our goal from the start has been to replace proof of work and to do proof of work. Uh, obviously, you've got machines that are earning revenue from proof of work. So to just replace that with compute, you know, there isn't enough or it takes time basically to replace proof of work with compute. So you need to essentially embrace proof of work to start with and then replace <laughs> is the two stages. Uh, so we had to support proof of work to begin with. We had to build a platform that you know, we'll run, maintain proof of work, we'll let anyone, a mining farm run and operate proof of work or devices, home devices to run proof of work and generate funds from that. And then once we have that in place, we can then start to replace that with computing. We're not removing that revenue generation, which is what's needed. We're replacing it. And as you then start to replace it and to start with, you know, it'll be 5%, 10%, but our aim is that the majority of this work is all generated from real compute rather than a proof of work and ultimately we want to replace that completely then over time you know and we we're obviously trying to do this as quickly as possible and would like to get to the majority of the compute replaced next year then you know we've just essentially reached our goal is that what we want is so that data centers and server farms don't keep having to build platforms to keep up with the demand so take the top 24 service providers they spent 75 billion last year just to keep up with demand but all of that meant data centers were creating CO2 and building CO2. Servers are being produced and built, which create CO2, and then they're being transported to those locations and using CO2. So, you know, what we want to do is use everything that's out there and, and replace it. And then rather than mining farms keep buying, you know, ASICs and servers, or sorry, ASICs rather, or just pure mining rigs, then we want them buying hardware that's used for compute. So that's ultimately been our goal, and that's what we've been working towards. And actually, if you look at the mining farms that we work with directly, they're all in renewable energy locations, so Iceland and Sweden and other sites where all of that energy is renewable. So, you know, that has been our goal from the start with, but we, we've had to take it in that order. That's really how we've been to do it. And we, you know, we want to make cloud computing more sustainable, like I was saying, that's where we come back from. Being a data center provider ourselves, you know, we were as green as we can, but you can never be totally green if you're building that infrastructure. You know, the only way you could be totally green is to replace infrastructure that already exists. 
And from a blockchain perspective, you know, we, we've taken that approach as well, is that the blockchain ourselves or itself that, well, we've actually done a partnership with Climate Trade and that enables us to make our blockchain carbon neutral. And then we, so, so you know, you run your smart contracts, build your NFTs, they're all carbon neutral from the start. And also that's why we've partnered with other blockchains that are also carbon neutral, such as Algorand, because they're a carbon neutral blockchain. So that's all about being carbon neutral. And anything that you run on our blockchain will become the neutral as well. And also then when you extend compute and you want to scale compute out from the smart contracts, then that can run in carbon neutral locations, but also, you know, working with climate trade, then all of that can be carbon neutral as well. So it, it's kind of a process that we're going through and those are those stages. And, you know, we're now getting to those final stages where these platforms or the, the newer platforms and carbon neutral platforms are all going live and we're now starting to replace those workloads. So blockchain and sustainability, is it an oxymoron or a reality? It's now a reality. That's a good answer. (laughs) Okay, so fascinating stuff from Matt Hawkins, uh, my boss, CEO of Kudo and Kudo's Network. Everyone in business has a responsibility to be sustainable in this day and age, and we now have the technology to support this. So I, for one, am very thankful for the opportunity to be part of a company that is driving the right behaviours forward and leading by example. Matt, thank you very much for being the first ever guest on the first ever Kudos cast. It's been an absolute blast. And thank you to all of our listeners who have tuned in. Next week, we are discussing the Kudos staking platform in readiness for the launch uh, with our lead data scientist, Joanne Garcia Utomo. Have a great week. A huge, huge thank you for tuning in and listening to our first ever Kudos podcast uh, in conversation with CEO Matt Hawkins. Hopefully you found it really, really fascinating like I did. And I'd like to thank our sponsors, Algorand, THG and AMD. For more details, you can check them out in the description and support this podcast. For more content from Kudos, you can find us on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, Medium, and you can also join our communities on Telegram. Until next time, adios and au revoir.